You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It was a brilliant sight, the march of the 3rd Army Corps under Sickles from its place in the line of battle near Little Round Top, half a mile toward the west and the southwest, to occupy a new position on the ridge in their front. Battle flags waved above the heads of the gallant soldiers. The bright gleam of their muskets flashed along their extended line. Aides were to be seen galloping in every direction to execute the orders for the advance. Bugles sounded out their stirring blasts, indicating the will of the corps commander, who with his gaily decorated staff, some of them in showy Zouave costume, superintended the movement. While no engagement had yet taken place, yet the rapid crack, crack of muskets beyond the new ridge all along the skirmish line afforded signs of fast-approaching battle. The cheers that went up as the general galloped across the field showed that the Third Corps believed in the intrepidity and skill of its impetuous commander. The men found the fences all down as they marched forward, the skirmishers having destroyed them in their advance, thus clearing the fields of barriers that might have impeded the movement. The line was soon formed, and a brief breathing spell was afforded. It is half past three o'clock in the afternoon, and suddenly a cannon shot is heard, followed by another, a sign that something is going to happen. General Sickles has been at Meade's headquarters, half a mile away to the rear on the Tawnytown Road, and the noise of the artillery brings him galloping to his corps, with General Meade following close behind. It seems that Sickles had gone far out beyond the point that Meade had intended as the line of battle. Several motives prompting the movement, one being the fear that the Rebs might occupy the Emmitsburg Road and thence advance against the Union line and break it into pieces. He judged that the line he now occupied was better than the other which Meade had chosen. As the two generals sat on their horses for a moment not far away from where I was stationed, it could be clearly seen that both were in deep concern. Finally, after some discussion, Sickles said, Well, General, I will withdraw and resume my former position back yonder if you give the command. General Meade, rightly divining the movement then in progress on the part of the enemy, said, The Confederates will not let you withdraw now. And the words were hardly out of his lips when an exploding shell in the air almost over their heads showed that the battle was begun. Lieutenant Jesse Bowman Young, Staff, Brigadier General Andrew Humphreys, 3rd Corps, Army of the Potomac.
Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 343 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, we used the last show to talk about Longstreet's flank march on the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg, July 2nd, 1863, which ended up involving a great deal of time-consuming backtracking and countermarching in order to stay out of sight of the Federal Signal Station over on Little Round Top. It wouldn't be until about 3.30 that afternoon, three and a half hours after setting out on a march that should have taken about half that time, that the head of McClaw's division, Longstreet's lead unit, at last neared its jumping-off point for the planned attack on the Union Army's left flank. As his men turned left and now marched east up the wooded western slopes of Seminary Ridge, Lafayette McClaws had a very brief conversation with James Longstreet. The Corps commander asked, How are you going in? To which McClaws answered, That will be determined when I can see what is in my front. Longstreet replied, There is nothing to your front. You will be entirely on the flank of the enemy. McClaws said, Then I will continue my march in columns of companies, and after arriving on the flank, as far as is necessary, will face to the left and march on the enemy. That suits me, said Longstreet, before riding off to talk to John B. Hood, his other division commander. And with that, McClaws rode forward to catch up with the head of his division near the crest of the ridge. When he arrived there, the sight that greeted Lafayette McClaws was not at all the one he was expecting. He later wrote, quote, The view astonished me as the enemy was massed in my front and extended to my right and left as far as I could see. McClaws was thunderstruck. He was not on the Union left as he had been told and as he had expected. He was, instead, directly opposite a line of Union infantry and artillery positioned just 600 yards to his front, in and around the Peach Orchard, with their lines running both north along the Emmitsburg Road and southeasterly, it appeared, all the way toward Little Round Top. It was obvious the enemy was not holding the positions Robert E. Lee had imagined, and it was now clear to McClaws that Lee's plan of attack was based on an entirely false understanding of the Union line. This, as Lafayette McClaws later noted, quote, presented a state of affairs which was certainly not contemplated when the original plan or order of battle was given. As we said at the end of the last show, the large enemy force that Lafayette McClaws discovered unexpectedly deployed there to his front on the afternoon of July 2nd was Dan Sickles' Third Corps. And if you've read ahead in the story, then you know that it's no exaggeration to say that the Third Corps' presence there would be almost as unpleasant a surprise to Federal Army Commander George Meade as it was to McClaws. At the beginning of his excellent book, Sickles at Gettysburg, Jim Hessler writes, quote, 
Major General Sickles is known to students of the battle for his controversial and unauthorized advance to the Peach Orchard on July 2nd, seemingly in defiance of George Meade's orders. Sickles' participation in the battle lasted barely 24 hours, yet no single action dictated the flow of the second day's combat and much of the third day more than his controversial advance. Common historical place names such as Devil's Den, the Wheat Field, and the Peach Orchard might not exist today were it not for Sickles. One of Gettysburg's most mythical moments, the last-minute defense of Little Round Top, would almost certainly have occurred quite differently were it not for Sickles. Whether the battle's outcome would have been any different, we will never know, but the history that occurred surely would have been significantly altered. As a result of his actions, no participant, with the possible exception of James Longstreet, has generated more controversy and hostility in Gettysburg's history. Because Dan Sickles played such a pivotal role at Gettysburg, we're going to devote a couple of episodes to looking at not only the decision he made that day to advance the Third Corps, but also looking at his backstory. That's because Sickles gained notoriety years before he ever put on a general's uniform. His strong personality and mixed reputation made him both friends and enemies. He brought this baggage with him to Gettysburg, where his bold decision on the battle's second day added to the controversy already swirling about him. Say what you will about Dan Sickles, but he undeniably remains one of the most fascinating characters of the Civil War, which is saying something, since, as you guys know by now, it was a conflict filled with fascinating characters. But Sickles rose from Tammany Hall politics in New York City, to defendant in a sensational murder trial, to serving as the highest-ranking non-West Pointer in the Army of the Potomac, to playing a pivotal role on the war's greatest battlefield. So, we're going to take a bit of time to look at his story. Daniel Edgar Sickles was born in New York City, probably in October 1819, although Sickles himself gave conflicting accounts regarding the year of his birth. Indeed, there's little reliable information about his early years. What is known for certain is that he was the son of George and Susan Sickles, and that George was not only a prominent patent lawyer, but also a real estate speculator, who ended up quite wealthy. It seems that as a teenager, Dan had trouble in school and began to associate with unsavory companions and to indulge in what would become a lifelong inclination to dally with women of ill repute. In 1838, in an attempt to separate him from his friends and prepare him for college, Dan's parents installed him in the household of a family friend, Lorenzo DePonte an attorney, and New York University professor. In the same household were Lorenzo's 89-year-old father, as well as the elder DePonte's adopted daughter, Maria, and her husband, Antonio Bagioli, a successful composer and music teacher. As it turned out, Dan and Maria were much the same age, 
and there were rumors of an affair, which is especially unsavory if true, since Maria would eventually become Dan's mother-in-law. Oh, geez, I know. But at the time, Dan's future wife, Teresa, was simply the Bagioli's infant daughter, who was born sometime around 1836, or a couple of years before Sickles went to live with Lorenzo de Ponte. Sickles entered New York University during his second year living with de Ponte, but when his mentor died suddenly in 1840, Dan lost interest in college. He decided to pursue an entirely new path. Sickles was no stranger to the law. His father and his mentor were both attorneys, and as early as 1837, Dan himself was indicted for obtaining money under false pretenses. So naturally, when he dropped out of school, he decided to study law. Right. Well, he was admitted to the bar in 1843 at the age of, let's say, 24, But during those years, Sickles continued to gain a reputation for questionable business practices and sketchy ethics. As a lawyer, he also gained political connections, and perhaps not surprisingly, when he entered the rough-and-tumble world of New York politics, it was as a Democrat by way of the notoriously corrupt Tammany Hall political organization. As part of the Tammany Hall machine, Sickles' star rose, and in 1847, he was elected to the New York Assembly. During this time, as was common with many prominent, ambitious men of the era, he also burnished his military reputation by joining the state militia. He took part in New York state militia activities from 1849 to 1853 before retiring from it with the rank of major. Sickles continued to be active with the Democratic Party during the 1850s. Still a bachelor, he had a well-earned reputation for fast and extravagant living. He was a regular at one of New York City's most exclusive houses of ill repute. It was run by a prostitute named Fanny White, who took a special interest in Dan. She reportedly, quote, paid his tailor's bills, gave him jewelry to wear, and kept him abundantly supplied in money, end quote. When he was serving in the State Assembly in Albany, Sickles earned the censure of his colleagues when he brazenly escorted White into the legislative chamber. There were even rumors that Dan exchanged Fanny's services for campaign favors. As Jim Hessler points out, If true, this may make Dan Sickles the only Gettysburg Corps commander with pimp on his diverse resume. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, 
shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Fanny White wasn't happy, not happy at all, when she heard rumors that Dan's wandering eye had turned upon a certain young Italian girl. Fanny was so unhappy, she reportedly went after Sickles with a whip. At any rate, it turns out the other woman was 16-year-old Teresa Bagioli, the same girl Sickles had lived with when she was an infant in his mentor's household, and whom the 33-year-old Dan now married in September 1852. A daughter, Laura, was born to the couple in 1853, although her birth date is uncertain, leaving open the possibility that the child was conceived out of wedlock, which would explain why a 30-something rising political star married a teenager. In any case, Sickles, now a member of the Tammany Hall elite, received an offer in the spring of 1853 to serve as assistant to James Buchanan, the new American ambassador to Britain. Buchanan and Sickles set sail for England in August 1853, while Teresa stayed behind, either in the late stages of pregnancy or with a new infant to care for, depending which timeline you believe. But Dan didn't lack for female companionship, since Fanny White apparently went with him to London. During his time in London, Dan took to wearing his New York militia uniform quite a bit, and Buchanan played along, referring to him as Colonel Sickles. Sickles created an uproar, though, and embarrassed Buchanan when he refused to take part in a toast to the Queen's health on July 4, 1854. It wasn't long after that incident that Sickles made it known he was growing bored with his assignment in London, and Buchanan accepted his resignation. Dan returned to New York at the end of 1854. Having found diplomacy not to his liking, Sickles returned to politics. He was elected to the New York State Senate in 1855 and was also named chairman of Tammany's executive committee. Um, and really for us, all you need to know about Sickles' character and moral fiber, if you will, is that he was a prominent figure in Tammany Hall politics. Truly, only someone who had no scruples was corrupt through and through and was a generally despicable human being would rise to play such a prominent role in the Tammany Hall political machine. So there you go. In 1856, besides stumping for Buchanan's presidential bid, Sickles decided to run for a seat in the U.S. Congress and was elected in November of that year, the same election that elevated James Buchanan to the presidency. 
Dan and Teresa rented a house on Lafayette Square across the street from the White House, and President Buchanan was a frequent guest in their home. Jim Hessler writes, quote, Washington wives played an important role in their husbands' careers, and Teresa had significant social obligations. She was expected to attend or host a party nearly every day and night. It was during this time that Sickles met Philip Barton Key. He was born in 1818, four years after his father, Francis Scott Key, penned the Star-Spangled Banner. In 1853, Philip was appointed United States Attorney for the District of Columbia. Key and Sickles were introduced through a mutual friend. The former was worried Buchanan might replace him, and the latter agreed to intercede on his behalf, and Key was reappointed to his position. Key and Sickles quickly became friends. When Sickles was traveling or attending congressional sessions, which was often, Key accompanied Teresa to social functions. Gossip, quiet and limited at the outset, began to grow. Dan confronted Key, who vehemently denied the charge. In fact, Key was a liar, and he and Teresa were having an affair. While Dan was in New York battling for re-election, Key's and Teresa's romantic relationship heated up. The pair began meeting in a rented house on Washington's 15th Street, two blocks from the Sickles' home. Key took to signaling Teresa by waving a white handkerchief while standing in Lafayette Square across from the Sickles' residence. After hearing reports of what was going on, Dan extracted a full confession in writing from Teresa on the evening of February 26, 1859. Historians have speculated why Sickles had Teresa make a written confession, but the most likely interpretation is that he intended to use the confession as defense after he confronted Key and exacted his revenge. At any rate, the next day, February 27th, an unsuspecting Key approached the Sickles house, twirling the white handkerchief. Dan armed himself with a revolver and a pair of derringers then went out and confronted Key, shouting, Key, you have dishonored my house. You must die. His first shot grazed Key, but before he could fire a second time, Key grabbed him and the two men began to struggle. They then broke apart, and as Key was backing away, pleading, Don't shoot, Sickles fired, hitting Key two inches below the groin. Key tried to grab onto a nearby tree, but slumped to the ground. Sickles walked over and pulled the trigger a third time. The gun misfired, so he cocked the piece again, placed it against Key's chest, and this time it fired. Sickles placed the barrel against Key's head and pulled the trigger once more, but again it misfired. By this time, numerous people were gathered around the scene, and Sickles was led away, while Keyes was carried to a nearby club, where he died shortly thereafter. In his book, Jim Hessler notes that, quote, 
The murder of Philip Barton Key and accompanying trial of Congressman Dan Sickles had all of the scandalous elements expected to thrill the American public. Adultery, politics, celebrity, and a handsome corpse. Newspapers across the country provided extensive coverage. The shocking killing was daily front-page news. Hessler also notes that an immediate and significant show of public sympathy broke out for the accused. It was apparent that, even to his enemies, adultery was justifiable excuse for the crime. When Sickles' trial began on April 4, 1859, he had the 19th century version of a legal dream team. He had no less than eight high-powered attorneys representing him. And although he wasn't the lead counsel, the defense team is best remembered for the presence of future Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. In a courtroom packed with spectators and newspaper reporters, Sickles pleaded not guilty in a clear and firm voice. By the second day of the trial, one reporter wrote, quote, I will not be at all astonished if Sickles is acquitted with the least trouble. One particular part of the strategy adopted by Sickles' lawyers made the trial noteworthy for something beyond its scandalous aspects. You see, it was put forth by the defense that the recent discovery of the affair, compounded by seeing Key in front of his own house, had produced, quote-unquote, mental unsoundness sufficient to cause deadly violence. Complete insanity was a valid and previously established defense, but the Sickles team is believed to have argued before an American jury for the first time what would become known as the temporary insanity defense. At the end of both sides' closing arguments, the judge instructed the jurors that questions of insanity should be considered quote-unquote at the moment when the crime was committed, and so the judge basically validated the defense's case. The jury deliberated an hour and ten minutes before returning with a verdict of not guilty. Most newspapers praised the verdict. For the most part, the moral climate of that era viewed Key in the wrong and Sickles as the righteous avenger. Public attention quickly turned toward the presumably scandalous upcoming divorce of Dan and Teresa. But in a completely unexpected twist in the story, rumors began to circulate that the couple had reconciled. In July, the New York Herald reported that, quote, it is said their love is greater than ever. Hessler writes, quote, the reconciliation turned public opinion resoundingly against Dan, and the verdict of innocence was now openly questioned. A correspondent for the Philadelphia Press newspaper argued that if Teresa can be forgiven now than under the circumstances, as now developed, Key ought to have been spared. By taking Teresa back into his bed, Sickles alienated most of his personal friends and political allies. What this meant was that Dan was decidedly on the sidelines when he reported back to Congress in December 1859. He had little influence, participated in few debates, and was shunned by his colleagues. Famous Southern diarist Mary Chestnut witnessed Sickles, quote, sitting alone on the benches of Congress, 
he was left to himself as if he had smallpox. End quote. Dan Sickles completed his term in Congress under a cloud. Too realistic to make another run for re-election, Sickles returned to New York City in early 1861 to pick back up with his law practice. Having been driven out of Congress by those who couldn't abide his decision to forgive Teresa, and having returned to New York as a private citizen, Sickles was, at loose ends, so to speak, when the secession crisis turned from words to open warfare in April 1861. As a Democrat in the pre-war Congress, Sickles, like most Northern Democrats, had for the most part voted with a powerful Southern Democratic bloc, even to the point of echoing their insistence that the Union could never be preserved by force. However, after the opening of hostilities with the firing on Fort Sumter, he changed his tune and seems to have been genuinely outraged by the threat to the national government. Sickles and a friend received permission to use their influence to raise a brigade of troops from New York. Using speeches and calls to patriotic duty, they they recruited thousands of men who filled the ranks of first three and then eventually five regiments. Sickles, who received a colonel's commission, promptly dubbed them the Excelsior Brigade, after the New York State motto, Ever Upward. The Excelsior Brigade was accepted into federal service in July 1861. The New Yorkers spent late 1861 posted in Maryland, keeping the peace in the slave state, while Sickles, ever the opportunist, spent much of that time in Washington, lobbying for a Brigadier General star and cultivating friendships with President and Mrs. Lincoln. After the Senate declined to give him his star, it took the personal influence of both Abraham Lincoln and Edwin Stanton to get his renomination approved by the razor-thin margin of 19 votes to 18 in the Senate. By that time, the Excelsiors, as part of Joe Hooker's division in the Army of the Potomac, had sailed south, headed for the peninsula, where they were taking part in McClellan's campaign against Richmond. It wasn't until May 24, 1862, that orders were officially cut for the newly minted Brigadier General to join his command in Virginia. It had taken a while, but Dan Sickles was finally going to war. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Sickles at Gettysburg by James A. Hessler. The subtitle of Hessler's book is The Controversial Civil War General Who Committed Murder, Abandoned Little Round Top, and Declared Himself the Hero of Gettysburg. So there you go. We highly recommend it. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Just last week, we released members episode number 114 over on Patreon, 
in which we look uh, a little bit closer at John Burns' story than we did here in the regular episodes. As you guys know, Burns was the old fellow, the Gettysburg civilian, who pitched in to fight the Rebs on the first day of the battle. Anyway, we hope the members of the Strawfoot Brigade enjoyed listening to that episode. As we wrap up this show, we want to thank the newest members who have signed up to support the podcast. Russell, Eric, Jarek, Michael R., Scott, Michael S., Joshua, and Andrew. M. Rupp, Big Daddy O., Daniel, John B., Eric, William, Craig, Austin, John C., and Ian. And thanks to Ed B., Carla, Edward N., Russell, Jason, Greg, and John H. for their donations. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time when we'll talk some more about Dan Sickles' story and get him up to the morning of July 2nd, 1863, there at Gettysburg. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.